Thank you, Matt. Uh, last week, Grace and I were out in Switzerland's a church called Lift Church in a place called Zurich, which is between Zurich and Lucerne. And uh, it's an international church, and they were having their Taste of Nations equivalent last Sunday, but they do it straight after the service as lunch. And they had 35 different nations preparing 90 different dishes, which was absolutely awesome. So we don't have quite that many next week, but we're going to have a whole bunch. Uh, we did have a good time in Switzerland. Uh, the uh, first two days we were there, there was a thick, such a thick fog, you couldn't see anything. So they kept saying, it's really beautiful here, it's really beautiful here. And all we could see was fog. But just before coming home, they did take us up into the mountains, so we saw some snow, and that was awesome. Uh, right, this morning we are continuing our series called Faithful in Exile. We're um, doing some teaching from the first letter of Peter, and we're seeing how Peter writes to believers in what we think of as Turkey, and they're people who are from that part of the world, but they've come to faith in Christ Jesus, and that's making them feel not so at home as they previously did, because their faith in Christ is causing some friction for them in different social environments in the places where they live. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on the theme of worship in exile. The reality is that everybody worships something. Everybody worships. Uh, you might worship food. You might worship, I don't know, your boyfriend. You might worship, yesterday Grace and I and the kids went out to Kingston Lacey to look at the snowdrops. Magnificent snowdrops, Kingston Lacey. Always with spring is coming and the snowdrops come out. Thousands of people at Kingston Lacey yesterday worshipping the snowdrops. People worship all kinds of different things. We want to think about worshipping Jesus who's the one true one worthy of our worship. And we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, which is a passage about this. It's on page 1218 in these Bibles. It will also appear up on the screen. Peter says this, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a passage to quicken the pulse. It's a passage I've been really excited about speaking from. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. And it makes some massive claims. It makes some really big claims about who Christians are. And that's important to think about because we might ask the question, are Christians different from anyone else? How are Christians different from anyone else? Because a lot of the time, we are no different from any, anyone else. We do the same stuff. We go to work and we pay our bills and pay our rent and take the kids to school and go and look at snowdrops at Kingston Lacey and whatever it might be. And so actually it can get really flattened. It can get, we can start to think that being a Christian 
means that you're not really different from anybody else. Maybe just you come to church on a Sunday and have that kind of spiritual moment, or maybe you've got a bit of a different moral compass. And what I'm hoping we'll do this morning is to turn up the contrast, get things into a sharper focus, and to see how Jesus calls us into something which is very different, and um, that being in exile sharpens that sense of distinction. So for the people that Peter is writing to, because of the pressure they were feeling for their faith, that was really bringing it into focus, bringing a sharpness, a, a distinction about how they were different from the people amongst whom they lived. They felt that distinction, and so should we. And what this passage really does is to focus in on a sense of identity. And this is what the Bible often does, actually, focuses on who we are and why that is and what that means. And so what I'm hoping we'll do this morning as we look at this passage is to bring Jesus into sharp focus again, to see who he is and to see that he is the reason that we're different, and to bring into sharp focus who Jesus' people are and what it means to be the people of God, and then to focus on how we are to respond, which is in our worship. So... Let's get into it and start with thinking about Jesus, the rock. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the rock, I often think about Dwayne Johnson, the rock. It's like, it's like looking in a mirror. But we're not talking about the rock. That rock this morning, we're talking about Jesus, the rock. And... Uh, Peter is writing this letter, and of course, Peter's name means rock. Peter had been called Simon. Jesus met Simon and said, you're not going to be called Simon, son of John anymore. I'm calling you Rocky. You're going to be my mate, Rocky. And here's Rocky writing about his savior, Jesus, the rock. And he uses a whole number of different images in this passage about Jesus as the rock, Jesus as a stone. He talks about Jesus, the living stone. And that's rather a strange metaphor, it's a strange image, because of course, by definition, stones don't live. Stones are inanimate physical objects, which is why they endure, because there's no life to drain out of them. They're solid, they're enduring. You can go to Stonehenge, not far from here, and look at those stones, which have stood for thousands of years and attract so much interest and speculation. How do they get there? What are they for? But they have endured, because they are not alive, they're dead. Uh, years ago, when I was a student, I used to sometimes in the holidays do uh, security work, very boring things like standing on the doors at conferences, checking people's passes. And one spring solstice, uh, I went to be on duty at Stonehenge when all the Druids wanted to come in and find life from the stones. And our job was to keep the Druids off the stones. And I, they were looking for life in the stones. I can tell you at three in the morning, there was no life on those stones other than me, and I was barely alive at that point myself. The tedium and boredom of standing on a stone at Stonehenge. Stones are not alive, but Peter says that Jesus is a living stone. What does he mean? It means that Jesus is unshakable, he's rock-like, dependable, eternal, but there's life that comes from him. And I think a picture that um, Peter probably has in mind here is the story in 1 Samuel 7 when God has given his people victory over the Philistines through Samuel who was leading the people at that time and it says Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen he named it Ebenezer which means stone of help saying thus far the Lord has helped us what 
Samuel's doing is he's taking this stone, which is something which is solid, endurable, permanent. He's placing it there and saying, this represents the way that God, the living God, treats his people. That he is faithful, dependable, he doesn't budge, he's a rock. That's why we sing that song, which has that line, here we raise our Ebenezer. We always have to explain it because it's strange to us. Here I raise my stone of help. Here I'm saying... God is the one who is the rock of my life. In him I trust. So Peter says Jesus is a living stone. Also says that Jesus is a rejected stone. And this is something that Jesus himself said. In Matthew, Matthew 23, we have Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, as he looks over the city of Jerusalem, 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 who, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent you how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus looks at the people of Jerusalem and sees that they reject him. The psalm that we started the service with, Psalm 57, talks about coming under the wings of God. It's a picture of God's shelter, his protection. And Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, Look, I could give you protection, but you're rejecting me. It's like a builder passing over a stone. If you're ever out in the Dorset countryside and see somebody building a dry stone wall, which is an amazing thing to watch, and you'll see how they sort through the stone and they'll choose one bit of stone and another bit of stone they'll throw away because it's not the right stone. And that's the kind of imagery that Peter's using here, that Jesus is a stone, he's a rock, but many people reject him. And the question, of course, is why? Those of us who know Jesus think, why would anybody reject Jesus? He's so beautiful, so kind, so merciful, so compassionate, so glorious, so wonderful. But of course, Jesus is also offensive. Jesus is offensive to anybody who is seeking to live life according to their terms. He's, he's threatening to anyone with power, prestige. He's threatening to, to anyone who's trying to hold on to things in their own way. He's a rock. He's a stone. He's not to be argued with, and this means that he causes offense, and it means that people reject him, which means that he also is a stumbling stone. You know, there aren't a, a spectrum of choices about how you respond to Jesus. It's not, oh, I'll have that bit of Jesus, but not that bit of Jesus. It's much more binary than that. It's either accept him or reject him. He's not a rock that you navigate your way around. What Peter says here is you either build your life on this stone or you end up tripping, stumbling over him. There's a story told in the Bible about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus, wanted to follow Jesus, but wanted to do things his own way as well. And Jesus says to him, great, come and follow me, but first you need to go and sell all your stuff and put your trust in me totally. Then let's get together and talk. And it says the rich young man went away sad it's because he stumbled, he tripped over Jesus. He wanted Jesus, but he wanted all the other stuff as well. And so Jesus is a stumbling stone. Jesus, Peter says, is a chosen stone. Jesus is God's come into the world. He's the Father's Son, precious to the Father. He's the Savior, the Messiah, the Rescuer. He's the one by whom all God's plans and promises are fulfilled. He's God's precious gift to us. Jesus, who came, sent by his Father, died in our place, took the weight of our guilt, our sin, our shame on the cross, suffered that death for us so that we could come close to God. That was a costly gift that God gave us. 
And the more costly a gift is, the more precious it is. Jesus is the one who's chosen. He's precious. And Jesus is the foundation stone. He's the cornerstone on which the house is being built. We often sing that song, Christ, our cornerstone. And the foundation always determines what can be built. It's the extent and the depth of the foundation which determines how big, how high, how tall a house, a building can be. Jesus is the foundation stone. He's the cornerstone. What is your life built upon? God wants us to build our lives on the cornerstone, the foundation stone of Jesus. Jesus spoke to Peter once. We read this in Matthew 16. Jesus said to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter, you're rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's Jesus speaking about there? Well, just before Jesus said this, he'd said to his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter, rocky, had said to Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, Rocky, you're right. It's upon this, upon this faith, upon this declaration of truth, on who I am. That's what the church is going to be built upon. And nothing, not even hell itself, can overcome it. Jesus is the foundation stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the one, the sure foundation on which to build our lives. And so Peter's point, as he uses all these images, these metaphors about Jesus' stone, the living stone, the rejected stone, the chosen stone, the foundation stone. The point he's making is that everything actually is shaped by Christ the rock. Don't stumble, don't trip over Jesus, but build on him. Don't reject him, but treasure him. And so there's application for all of us in this this morning. For those of us who know Jesus, it's a time to bring into sharper focus again who Jesus is, that Jesus is the living stone. He's the foundation stone. He's the one who is a sure place on whom we can stand and build our lives. And we need to see him again with greater focus, with greater clarity. And for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, this is the call to you. What are you going to do? Are you going to stumble over Jesus and reject him? Or are you going to embrace him and find him as the one on whom you can build your life. Jesus is the rock. Second thing is then about Jesus' people. Jesus is the living stone, but his people are living stones too. This is what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. This is really beautiful imagery that Peter's using here. And when he says you're being built into a spiritual house... We need to kind of get out of our minds an image, mental image of a three-bed semi. That's not what Peter has in mind. When he uses the term house, we need to have something much grander in our minds, something like the houses of parliament, a, a palace. And of course, for Peter, as a Jew, the imagery he's working with is of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the house of God. But a magnificent, impressive, architecturally uh, mind-blowing building covered in gold and just awesome. That's the kind of house that he's thinking of. And the temple is not just an architecturally impressive building, but the temple is the place where you come to be with God. The temple is a place where sacrifices are made by which you are declared to be pure enough, clean enough to come into the presence of God. And in the temple, that's where you gather to worship. And in the temple is where God is understood to dwell. So 
You come to the house of God to get clean and to meet with God and to be with his people and to know him. And then Peter says, and this is absolutely amazing, that this has now changed because the kind of house that is being built is not like the temple in Jerusalem, magnificent as it was, but the house which is now being built is made up of living stones, people, people like you and me, who God has got hold of, who've embraced Christ as our foundation stone, and are now being made into living stones who are filled with the Holy Spirit as we gather together as a spiritual house of God. The church is not bounded by physical walls. We gather here on a Sunday within physical walls to worship, but actually the church is all God's people, wherever they may be, filled with the presence of God, making God known out in the world. If we get hold of this, if you can get hold of what it means to be a living stone being built into a spiritual house, it just changes everything about how you understand the world, yourself, God's people, the whole deal. Apostle Paul says something very similar in his letter to the Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you. Paul writes this to a congregation, a group of Christians in the city called Corinth, and says, look, you, this people, this congregation, you're a temple of the Spirit. God's building something here. And the same thing then is true of us. Gateway Church here on Ashley Road this morning. This is a living temple, a spiritual house that God is building. And so if you get that, it just changes how you think about the church. Church isn't something you just come to on a Sunday. No, church is something that God is building, which has unbelievable power and awesomeness and wonder about it because gathered here are living stones. God's spirit is present amongst us. He's building something which is precious to him, magnificent, a living temple. It changes everything. If you, if you can get this sense of peoplehood, that we're called to be a people built together, knowing the presence of God's. This is really one of the reasons, primary reason, why we're encouraging us to get together and pray on Friday, 7 o'clock at Order Road, if you can get there, but throughout the day, half-hour slots. Because when we pray, and we're asking particularly to pray for what God is calling us to in our mission here at, at, at Gateway at the moment, there's a sense of, even if we're not in the same physical space together, we are living stones bound together. When I get up at 3 o'clock next Saturday morning to pray and pray for this church, it's not just going to be me on my own praying, but it's going to be me praying as part of this body because we are a living temple, a spiritual house that God is building. So get yourself signed up. Pick a half-hour slot next week. You can join me at 3 in the morning next Friday, next Saturday if you want to as well. And then what Peter says gets even more amazing because Peter says that not only are we the temple, but we are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We're not only the temple, but we're the priests who minister in the temple. We get to minister before God. We get to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. No longer the sacrifices of animals, but spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? In his letter to the Romans, Paul puts a bit more flesh in the bones of this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
What does that mean? It means this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are called as priests to minister in the house of God. And the sacrifice that we now offer is to say, Lord, have it all. We offer our lives to you and we seek to live in a way which honors you in the world as we witness to you. God's people living in a way that honors him. Then gets even more amazing. Look at verse 9 again. Peter writes this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an extraordinary summary of what Christians are. It's an amazing summary of who we are. And what Peter's doing here is digging deep into the history of God's people and God's promises. And actually, in in these verses, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, what Peter does is, is to take two Old Testament verses and put them together in a way which now speaks about all of God's people. At the beginning of the Exodus, you know the story, Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They've been slaves in Egypt 400 years. God sends Moses they leave the Exodus, and then for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness before finally they enter the promised land. And at the beginning of the Exodus, God speaks through Moses, Exodus 19, and says this, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And at the end of the 40 years, just before they enter the promised land, God again speaks through Moses, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, and says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And you see then what Peter does is to take those two verses, a promise at the beginning of the 40 years and a promise at the end of the 40 years. He puts them together and says, this is now true of you. You people living in Turkey, you're not Jewish, you've never been to Israel, but these promises are now yours. Once they weren't, but now they are. Once this wasn't true of us, once we weren't in, but now we are. Wow. It's awesome. Peter says that we've been chosen. We've been chosen. This is how actually Peter begins and ends the letter. Verse 1 of this letter, Peter writes to God's elect exiles. And at the end of the letter, he says, the God of all grace calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. It's a theme that runs throughout the letter. If you are a member of the people of God, why is that? It's because God has chosen you. He's called you. God wants you. It's wonderful. It's this certainty of our calling that gives us courage in the world. I suspect most of us know what it is not to be chosen. might be way back in the school playground when it always seemed to be you who was the last person to get picked. It might be in a relationship where the person you hoped would choose you didn't. It might be at work where you feel that you should have been chosen for a, a promotion and for whatever reason you've been looked after. We all know the experience of not being chosen, but what Peter says here about us Christians is that we've been chosen by God. And this gives us such 
security because of the certainty of God's call on our lives. If you respond to faith, in faith to Jesus, you can be certain that God has chosen you, called you, wants you. He says we're a royal priesthood. Now this is amazing because it shouldn't be possible because in the nation of Israel, the priests and the kings were different. You couldn't be a priest and a king. The priests were people who stood between the people and God. The people are here. God's here. The priest stands here and the, and the priests make sacrifices and the priests are the people by whom the people can somehow come and worship God. And then the king is different because the king stands here and the people are here and the king stands between the people and other nations as God's representative. The king is to represent the nation of Israel to the other nations and defend the nation of Israel against other nations. And here Peter says that we Christians are a royal priesthood, that we're both. Somehow we are priests and kings. And this is God's promise. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. This is who we are. So if you're a Christian, you've got this status of royalty. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been declared by him to share in his royal rule. But we also have the status of priests. That we are people who can come freely into the presence of God, offering living sacrifices. We can come to him directly without offerings and our petitions. And so we stand in this amazing place of being a royal priesthood. It says that we're a holy nation, a holy people. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, that religious group we often read about in the Bible, some of them had this belief that if the whole, if everybody who was a member of the nation of Israel were to keep the law of Moses perfectly for just one day, then God would break in, his kingdom would come, and the Romans would be expelled from Israel, and everything would be set to right. And that's why the Pharisees were so legalistic. That's why they were so determined to keep every rule and added more and more rules. And that's why we read again and again about Jesus coming into conflict with the Pharisees and saying, look, you've missed the point. It's not about how you're keeping the law. It's about your heart's relationship with God. Now, what Peter says about us is not that we need to strive like the Pharisees to legalistically keep the law, but no, we have been declared already to be holy. By Jesus dying in our place, by Jesus carrying our sin and our shame, by his declaring of us as righteous, by his adopting of us as God's children, his choosing of us, we are declared to be holy in the sight of God. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing because we know that that's not who we are. We know that we sin. We know that we mess up. We know there are things we do and we have to confess to God and we often have to confess to one another. But what God declares about his people is that we are a holy people, a holy nation. We have free access into the presence of God. God's attitude towards us isn't one of anger, but it's one of welcome. Peter says that we are God's special possession. We're valuable to God. We're his treasure. Peter says that Jesus, chosen, precious to the Father, says that we are precious to the Father. His treasured, special possession. You know, this is so reassuring. If if you struggle with low self-esteem, this is the truth you need to get hold of. Who are you? Well, if you belong to the people of God, you're part of something which God treasures. You're special. You're chosen. 
treasured by him. That, that changes how you think about yourself, changes how you think about other people. Treasured by God. And then Peter says, we have received mercy. We've been let off the hook. The parking attendant has said, oh, it's all right. You can park there. I won't find you. The banker said, oh, it's okay. We're not going to charge you for that credit card debt. The judge has said, oh, it's all right. You're innocent. Even though we were guilty in the sight of God, we were. But God, in his mercy, removes our debt, the guilt, the fine, the punishments. He pours his mercy out on us. This is something we need to bring into focus again this morning, the mercy of God. So life transforming when you understand it. Those of us who know Jesus, we need to be reminded again about his mercy. It might be that you, you need a sense, a fresh touch of the mercy of God this morning. That You just feel you, you need to know the mercy of God. As a Christian, it's yours. And for those who don't yet know Christ, mercy is available. Mercy from God that will bring you into his people, declare you to be his treasured possession, chosen, a member of a royal priesthood. You know, this is so much better, so much richer than our contemporary notions of fairness and, and rights, rather than all that stuff about trying to grab hold of that stuff and do stuff that way. We Christians, we receive the mercy of God. He just says, you're, you're forgiven, you're welcome, you're mine. It's awesome. Bring into focus who Jesus is. Bring into focus who Jesus' people are. And then last thing is that we are called in response to declare his praise. Declaring the praise of God is how we witness to the truth of God in our worlds. This is what Peter says we've been called and chosen for. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of dark into his wonderful light. This is what you've been called for. This is what you've been chosen for, to declare the praises of God who's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This should be the most natural thing for us to do, but it can be Actually, extraordinary challenging. Uh, I wish I could get you all to read this book, Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. It's so brilliant. In this book, he says this. It really made me feel the challenge of this. Praise is the most natural thing in the world for us, and we do it all the time. We brag about our favorite sports team. We rave about restaurants. We shamelessly tell others about the deals we find online. We can't stop talking about the latest Netflix series or our last vacation. We adore musicians, endorse politicians, and fawn over celebrities. We promote our kids' school and post about our morning coffee. We sing the praises of just about everything, even gluten-free pizza. But ask us to raise our voices in praise to God outside of weekend worship and we struggle to string together a whole sentence while we, and I include myself here, and I include myself here, demonstrate an incredible ability to proclaim the glories of endless earthly trivialities, we somehow stutter and stammer at the opportunity to speak with others about our heavenly hope. So it's obvious our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken, it's because our hearts are. Because if we worship God as we should, our neighbors, co-workers, and friends would be the first 
to hear about it. I read that, and it was like, ah, oh, to the heart. So challenging. You know, it's easy in here this morning to sing and shout about who Jesus is and what that means for who we are, but what about out there? This year, we're particularly focusing on this theme of faithful. God is the faithful God. He's our rock, and we want to be faithful ourselves as we follow him. And I think a key thing for us, I think a key thing for me, is to be more faithful in declaring his praises. I know that I have not been faithful enough in declaring the praises of God. In here, yes, but out there, not so much. I know that too often my mouth is shut, too often I can praise other things, and not often enough with the people I know and care about, my friends, not often enough declaring the praises of the one whom they need to know. Elliot Clark says this, if evangelism doesn't exist, it's because worship doesn't. The point he's making there is this, that maybe the reason we don't see more people coming to know Jesus is because we're not praising Jesus enough in the hearing of people. This year, let's be faithful in declaring the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful life. He's Jesus, the living stone, the rescuer, the Messiah, our sure foundation. He's so precious, beautiful, a treasure, and we are his living temple. Amazing, awesome. We're living stones being built into this incredible spiritual house, ministering before him as his priests. So let's declare his praises. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're made for, to speak out the praise of Jesus, our rock, who has brought us into life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we'll come back to worship him. Come back and sing together, and then we're going to come and take bread and wine as we normally do on Sunday mornings. I really love us to, to respond to Jesus this morning. And there might be a whole number of different ways and things by which we need to respond. I think as I was speaking, I, I did feel earlier this kind of prompting from God about those who need to have a sense of the mercy of God. It might be that you, you're, might be you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, or it might, might be your first time ever in church, and you've never known the mercy of God, but it's got a sense that for a number of people, there's a, you really need to know mercy, that what you're living under isn't a sense of mercy, it's a sense of heaviness and condemnation, and actually what you need to find is the mercy of God, his kindness, his goodness. So as we worship now, as we come and take bread and wine, you come to Jesus and you ask him to minister direct to your heart, but it'd be great to pray for people hands-on as well if you need to know that. And I think for, for many of us, actually, what we need to respond in is, is a sense of, God, would you give me courage? Would you fix my heart and my mouth so that I declare your praises, not just in here, but out there, that I declare who you are and uh, that we might be, yes, more brave, perhaps more ridiculed, but also more fruitful in seeing other people coming and finding Christ the rock who gives us life. So I'll pray that we'll sing. And then let's come and take bread and wine together and respond. Jesus, thank you so much 
that you are our rock. You are the living stone. And you, brought, you, you're, you put, put life in us that we can be stones being built into this great edifice, this great spiritual house, the church of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond to you. Help us to, to see who you are and see who we are. And that would cause us then to respond and declare your praises. So I ask that for those here this morning who don't yet know you, that you'd, they wouldn't stumble over you, but they might come and embrace you and find mercy in you. And Lord, for us who do know you, that we wouldn't just become flattened out in our faith, but we'd see the distinction of what it means for us to be the people of God, the awesome privilege and blessings of that, all that we have and all that we are because of who you are and what you've given to us. So we respond to you now, Jesus. We do. We come running to you again. Stand on the rock that is Christ and ask that we might know your life at work in our lives. Amen. Let's worship him. We're going to sing a wonderful song that we sang at Christmas. And the setup of this song is slightly different in that we are asking questions and then we're answering the questions. And it's brilliant because it leads us from a place of realizing that we're living in exile to seeing that Jesus is really the one who is worthy of all honor. We do. 